Welcome to the Plans and Provisions Podcast, your source for homesteading and preparedness information and inspiration. We're so glad you're here. We'll be talking with some incredible folks, sharing ideas, and learning what we can do to become more independent and resilient in these interesting times. Now here's your host, Jason White. There is no doubt that climate plays a major role in the plans of everyone on the homesteading path. In regions with harsh winters, homesteaders must contend with frozen soil and limited growing seasons, while in more arid climates, water scarcity and heat become critical concerns. The success of any homesteader is strongly tied to their ability to adapt and innovate in response to the unique climatic conditions of their location. Well, today I welcome Danny Welton, who, along with her husband and five kids, homestead on the outskirts of Phoenix, Arizona. They seem to have maximized on their strengths and overcome the challenges of raising livestock in the hot, dry Sonoran Desert. Since 2015, they have tried a lot of things and currently have a focus on cattle, having both a small dairy and beef herd on their three and a half acres. Danny gives some background on how they got started on their homestead and some of the ups and downs of their journey. I ask her how they manage their livestock in the heat of summer, and she shares some specific breed advice for those in similar climates. We talk about her home dairy recipe ebook, and Danny shares how she uses the gallons of milk produced daily on her homestead. Hello, Danny. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, excited to be here. I'm glad too. You know, I've I, I just invited you recently, but I've I've had you on my list of people I want to have on just because I kind of have had the opportunity to see a little bit of what you guys are doing there. Um, for those that certainly don't know, um, Danny was my uh, drop coordinator for Azure Standard in Arizona, and uh, that's how we got to to know each other a little bit. And uh, yeah, so I I've, I've just kind of always. You know, just on the back of my mind, thought one of these days I'll have to have Danny on. So I'm glad to have you today. Um, lots I want to talk about. I know you do dairy. Uh, you've got some cows, yeah. and um, so I definitely want to pick your brain and 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 get into that because it's something that my family is looking to get into in this next year or so. So definitely want to get into that. But as I usually like to do in these interviews, I kind of wanted to hear a little bit about your background as far as homesteading. You know, I know your Instagram says you've been doing this about eight years, seven, eight years. It's 2015, correct? Yeah, eight years. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, tell me a little bit about how you got started. So we lived in a normal HOA neighborhood um, when we had two very little kids. Um, around the time my daughter was a year old. Um, someone gave us some chickens and we weren't supposed to have them. They weren't supposed to have them because they were our neighbors. Um, and it was so much fun. And we got a few more chickens and a few more chickens. And then we bought some grass fed beef and we were like, this beef is so expensive. We got to figure out a way to raise it on our own. Right. <laughs> um, we never saved any money raising beef. Just, <laughs> just put that out. Um, so we kind of, We put our house up for rent and we started looking for an acre and it took us years to find our property. Um, It wasn't easy. Um, We bought ugly. That's Jill Winger's (laughs) thing by ugly. We bought a very ugly house, lived in it for a few years, fixed it up. But we finally moved in when my 
daughter was four and my son was two and I was very pregnant with my third. And so that was eight years ago. And we've been in the same property. Um, we got started off, of course we had chickens cause we already loved them. Um, we did the meat bird thing we got some goats, some sheep, <laughs> tested out a little thing. I think we did bees for a little bit. I don't like bees. Probably won't do that again. Um, but we, re we really jumped right in and learned what we liked and what we didn't like. And expanded from there. So you, you, you tried bees, you got, you got goats. Do you still have goats? <laughs> yeah. We don't, we actually, so I sold my goats and my sheep to pay for my cows. Um, we wanted to, I didn't want to do it all. I wanted to do what I really liked. So when I got my cows, um, we got rid of all the sheep and goats and focused on them instead. We ended up really liking the cows. I don't think we'll ever go back to goats and sheep again. Interesting. Yeah. We, we uh we we've got about a three acre pasture. Our property is just under five acres. We got a couple of bottle calves last year, and I actually just picked up the first of the two uh, from the butcher today. So that's our first. We're having our first taste of home raised beef. Um, cost wise, it turned out okay, but um, but you know we had a really good year for grass growth, so that was a big part of it. Um, so you 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 said you didn't like bees. What what about bees that do you not like? I was just always so nervous to take care of them. Even on it with a bee suit, I don't even think I ever got stung, but I dreaded it and I always put it off until like I absolutely had to. Uh, the first year we lost bees to the heat, like their hive literally just melted on a hot day. Um, and then the next year they got invaded by moths. And after that, I was just like, you know what? I didn't really enjoy it. And so that's just something we stopped doing. Maybe my husband really liked it though. So maybe... If he ever wants to take it on, but it was my responsibility, I took it on. So I'll probably never do it again. If he wants to in the future, he might do that. Yeah, we we've thought about it. Um, mostly, I've thought about it, and i've I've had uh, I've had Bobby from Bobby's Bees and the Rabbitry Center on the show, and and talked a lot about doing bees. And I, I've I've got some friends that do it, but it's just we already have so much to do, and I feel like to do it well, you really have to be very dedicated to it, and I just don't think that that's a check that I want to write because I don't think I could cash yeah. it right now. So I could I could definitely relate. Um, so when you you made that move to the property and you said you've been on the same property since that's your first homestead, mm -hmm. only homestead. Yes. So were you guys in in Arizona when you moved, or did you move from another location? Yeah, actually, my husband and I are both uh, born and raised in Arizona. So it's actually, we ended up actually buying our property very close to where our first house was. Like, I think it's a, about a, a mile and a half away. Um, we didn't necessarily plan that. We looked at properties all over in our area. Um, and some of them were further away. Some of them were closer. It just happened to be in a neighborhood that we drove town and oogled over the houses for years that we ended up finding one that was a match for us. That's nice. That's convenient. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, I mean, it didn't really disrupt your overall, overall life. I mean, obviously you had a lot more to do yeah. and a lot more to, to entertain you and to, to, to overwhelm you, but you were still able to keep everything else the same. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. And we actually ended up with a little bit bigger. We were just looking for an acre, um, but we found three and a half acres. So that's why I don't think we'll really leave because these size of properties in our area are just so slim. It's they're hard to find. Nice, nice. So yeah. So you you mentioned the gateway animal, the chicken, and you yeah. mentioned you got the few, and then you started getting more, which is a typical 
typical practice. Um, been there, done that way too many times. Um, what like, I want to get into a little bit of the motivation of, I mean, I know you didn't make this drastic change in your location, which many people are doing right now. And, and that's a huge challenge to move from the suburbs to a rural location. But you still, I mean, you, you, you've, you've changed a lot about, I assume, the way that you do life. Um, and you've made some, some major adjustments and, and taken on challenges that you really didn't have to in this life of convenience. I mean, what, what are some of the other things besides just kind of liking it? Like what, what kind of drove you guys to want to do all that? For sure. It is a huge lifestyle change that I think a lot of people aren't prepared for. It's not just caring for the animals and stuff. It's, it's, I mean, a bigger property. So you go from, if it takes 30 minutes to mow the lawn to now you're mowing for two and a half, three hours every other week, if you don't have enough animals or in the height of summer when you can't, the animals can't keep up with the grass, um, just huge lifestyle, the amount of time you're spending outside. But I, I guess I kind of crave that even when we first got our chickens, I don't know. I was just, I was already starting to learn to cook from scratch and, I think that just fed it more is that I just wanted a slower, older lifestyle. And so it all just, it all just made sense. It wasn't, it wasn't ever really like a light bulb. It was just adding on more skills that we, that interested us, a hobby, I guess, of sorts Um, for both me and my husband. I liked it. And that, so for my husband, we had chickens while one of them jumped over the fence and my dog started attacking it. And so he caught her in the act, but the chicken was beyond saving. So of course he was like, well, I got to, I got to save the meat from this chicken. This is a heavy chicken. And so he took him like two hours to butcher that chicken. Cause he had never done it before. <laughs> so he would like start butchering it and then he would stop and watch a YouTube video and then he'd start again and then stop and watch a YouTube video. And then we ate that chicken and he was like, this is so cool. He wanted to do more. So he got into raising rabbits for me. And so we've kind of both found things that we like about the homestead lifestyle that, and it's just evolved from there. Like he really likes raising the meat and having our freezers full of beef, pork, chicken, a fish, he does tilapia now, um, all the things. And then I just really like cooking from scratch. I love making a beautiful roast and sourdough bread and cheese. And it, it just, for both of us, we found our own niche within homesteading that drove us to want to do it. But I would say it's more just a general interest. We're, we're just very, I don't know, it was very like within us to want to do this. It wasn't uh, a fad or we watched people do it. We knew it was going to be a lot of work because we slowly got into it instead of just jumping in. Um, yeah. I would say that probably when you guys started doing this, people weren't really talking about homesteading a whole lot. It wasn't really a thing. It wasn't a, a tag or a, or a movement or an idea. It was just, you know, some people like to live that way. Right. Yeah. And even on YouTube eight years ago, nine years ago, when we were starting, like, I mean, Justin Rose was just starting posting his videos back then. And he's a huge, he was a huge part of the movement for homesteading. There, there wasn't much. And I think it was still like blogs were still the big thing. Like if you wanted to homestead and learn about homestead or all, all the things, it was mostly blogs and reading blogs. And I subscribed to a lot of those. I mean, like Prairie Homestead, 
uh, Reformation Acres, those like OG <laughs> blogs, because there weren't very many even YouTube videos. Instagram wasn't a thing. Um, Facebook was so different. So it wasn't, it wasn't really a fad at that point. It was just some, I don't know, something we really were passionate about. I remember asking my dad too. My dad grew up on a ranch in Utah. So that was his lifestyle. And I remember before we got our property, I would just ask him to tell me stories about like what their daily schedule was about how they had to go milk the cow before breakfast. And then breakfast was eggs and bacon from what they had raised. And it, it was just, it was so cool and fascinating to me that he lived like that. And I think that's where I got a lot of my, like it fed my, my need to want to live like that too and raise my kids like that. So you mentioned, you mentioned that influence. You mentioned a couple of blogs, like were, were those pretty mm-hmm. much your main sources of information and inspiration or where, where did you find, I mean, today we take for granted that we can literally pick up a phone out of our pocket and get guidance and teaching and instruction on just about anything, whether it's homestead or not. Yeah. Like what, what were your go-to sources for, for that kind of information? Yeah, it was mostly blogs. I subscribed to those blogs. I think I had a few favorites that I would cook the meals that they recommended. Um, I would just read about their day-to-day schedules. Um, I'm not I'm not a huge video person. I have learned so much on YouTube, but it's not usually my first point of reference. It's my husband's. He loves videos. Um, so yeah, mostly blogs. Uh, my dad's stories. My mom had a few stories from when they were first married. They, they had a farm for a little bit. Um, and then after we moved here too, we had some friends in the neighborhood that we got to know and learn some from them too, would offer to help them with butchering so that we could learn more. And, and yeah, we've made a lot more friends since then that also have homesteads, acres that want to do more. And that's been helpful. Nice. So you kind of mentioned or alluded to some of the division of labor there on the homestead and, and, division of interest mm-hmm. between you and your husband. I assume the kids are, are mixed into that as well. I mean, maybe you could paint a picture of what you guys have going on currently on the homestead and maybe kind of how that division of labor kind of looks. Yeah, for sure. So my husband still has a, a regular off the farm job. So he wakes up early in the morning and he's gone until 2 to 3 p.m., Um, The cows, the dairy cows are mostly my responsibility. So I wake up, I milk them, feed them, make sure everyone's fed. My kids wake up, they are in charge of different things. Um, One one of my kids is in charge of the chickens. So he has to make sure the chickens are fed and watered. Um, My other son is in charge of the pigs. So he feeds and waters the pigs. Um, My daughter's in charge of, she has her own chicken coop that's by the garden and the geese. And so they wake up and do their chores independently. They're a little bit older now, so they really don't need my help. They just need a reminder and make sure it gets done. Um, my youngest son, all he does is collect the eggs. He's only four, so someone follows him around with a basket and he collects the eggs. Um, and then, yeah, my husband has a greenhouse with some tilapia that he raises for fish. So I guess everyone's like all hands on deck for evening chores, um, mostly because it's like during dinner time, so it's kind of... That evening chore time is a little hard for us. Um, so everyone will be helping feeding the cows and milking, bringing cows in. We have two calves right now, so they have to be um, either se- separated from their mom in the evening so that we can get milk in the morning. And But yeah, I would say the dairy cows are mostly my domain. Um, that's what I love. I, I 
make sure the milk gets used. I skim the cream. I make all the dairy products. I, I'm over their health. If the vet needs to be called, that's on me. Um, my husband does help. He's very helpful with that sort of stuff, but I'm the main person over that. And then, yeah, we all just help when they, when the kids need help, but for the most part, they've got it. They've been doing their own thing for a while. When they first got started with helping us like independently, we actually set up our chicken coops to be like separate. So every kid would have their own chicken coop that they were in charge of with, I mean, five to 10 chickens in each coop. So we didn't have hundreds of chickens, but they all had their own so that they were in charge of it to give them some responsibility. And once they proved that they could do it without being reminded, we kind of moved them on to a bigger chore like the pigs or my daughter has the geese. And so it kind of depends on age a little bit. My eight-year-old is still only in charge of the chickens because he has to be reminded a lot <laughs> uh, to get that done because, I mean, they are live animals. They can't just not be fed. So um, we, we stay on them a little bit about that. But So, yeah, I think that's the division of labor for the most part. If there's ever a big project, obviously like a butchering day with chickens – everyone's involved in some form. We kind of like assign, like you do this, you do this, you're in charge of this and divide it up. And if anyone needs help, we step in. Um, same goes for like, if we have a bigger day, like if I have the vet coming over to check a cow or something like that, everyone will step in and make sure a gate's shut or lead her into the stall, make sure the vet has what they need, that type of thing. But we all have like our own domain. And I think that works. I think that division of labor works really well for us. I like I like the picture that you paint. My kids are pretty young. My oldest is eight, and my twins are going to be five here in about a week. And so the oldest is has really grown. We you know before we came here, she really hadn't been around any of this. You know, um, we always promised her, hey, one day we're going to buy a farm. We're going to buy a farm, and we actually were 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 able to do so. So we're we're grateful for that. But it's it was a big challenge. It was a big change of pace for for her especially. The 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 twins were three when we moved here and you know, they were along for the ride for the most part. Um so I look forward I look forward to a little more division of labor because right now it all rests pretty much on my wife and I and he- pretty heavily on my wife because I do work quite a bit. Um I assume that things have gotten easier for you guys, not only as you've develop better systems and learn from your you know, mistakes, but now you've got some pretty dedicated helpers. Yes, for sure. Especially, especially my daughter. She told us a couple years ago that she wants her own farm when she's older. And so my husband and I both looked at each other and we're like, well, okay, if you want to do that, you need to start learning all the things now. And so she really stepped up and started, she loves the calves. So right now I have calves. If I'm ever out there working with the calves, she's there too. And she loves it. So I guess, yeah, we bet we all definitely pick our favorite things and then just do them very well. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I thought that, I don't know, sometimes you see like on Instagram, people are like, oh, my eight year old milks the cow every day. Or even if you read books like Little House um, in the Big Woods and stuff, they're so young and they're helping so much. And I definitely expected that, but it's been a little bit different for us. And I don't know if it's because I kind of, if it's my fault, if I just let my kids get away with, <laughs> without too much responsibility till they were a little bit older. But I also know I'm working with live animals that I want to keep alive. And I don't want them dying just because they were accidentally not watered on a hot day. And so I've kind of been a little bit more of a helicopter to make sure that they're actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, 
and I didn't let them take over important chores like milking um, at a very young age. And maybe I could have done that differently, but I don't know. I just, I wanted to make sure things were done well also. And it's kind of a hard balance. Yeah, no, I, I can relate to that. And I, I mean, like you said, the margin of error is pretty slim when you're dealing with live animals, um, especially where you guys are with the heat. But, um, yeah. you know, and you mentioned, you know, uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder. I mean, that was probably a necessity <laughs> that those girls had to get out and do those things. We're, we're blessed to have a little more convenience. And so I think that uh, we're, we're kind of on the same trajectory, I think. But I wanted to mention, you mentioned butchering. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, how did you handle or what was it like as you guys started to butcher your own animals? Uh, and how, how did that go with the kids? So luckily our kids were still pretty young. I think when the first time we raised meat birds, um, oh, we, we actually raised like a handful of meat birds when we were still in our neighborhood home. So my daughter would have been like three and my oldest son, just a year old. So they weren't very old when we introduced them to that. But you know, I, because we started doing as much of this stuff as we could before we got our property, I think it was a lot easier transition for our kids because we would even talk about the food on our table as coming from somewhere. We would say this beef we got from this farmer and he raised it on grass as long as he could. And this animal provided this meal for us, like just on their level. But I mean, even to a three-year-old, I mean, these eggs came from our friend who has chickens. Those chickens you help fed, like feed, laid these eggs for us, and this is our breakfast. And we just started that so young, even before we were raising our own animals. And so I, I know when they, as they got older and they started being like, well, why are you killing this chicken? Like, why? And it was just a lot easier to answer those questions because we eat chicken. So it's our responsibility to raise it, love it, care for it, and then put it on our table as the best way we can. And so I think it's just answering those questions age appropriately and starting young, but way before you're even raising it yourself. And so that they know where bacon comes from pigs, eggs come from chickens. If they know that, I think it's a lot easier for them to accept when they're actually watching it. That's beautiful. Yeah, our kids did not have any exposure to any of that. Really, we we did some things. We did a lot of things before we had our kids. We kind of lived on farms and got a lot of experience. Then we moved to the suburbs and just kind of blended into that lifestyle. And so my my oldest was six when we moved here and hadn't been around any of it, didn't really have a good grasp of it. I like that you guys really kind of got the ball rolling ahead of time. And I and I tell people all the time that are looking to get into homesteading, maybe they're not in the ideal situation. Like what you guys did is perfect. You you just got started. You just did some things. You broke yeah. a few rules maybe and you did some things. And <laughs> you know, um and so I love to hear that. Um so you mentioned rabbits. Are you guys still raising rabbits? We don't. Rabbits are so hard where we are because of the heat. You can't breed them in the summer. And if they accidentally do get bred in the summer, they'll, it's almost certain they'll die. Uh, my husband had an awesome setup though. When we were in an HOA, he had like their cages up against a wall and then he had a 
swamp cooler running underneath their cages Mm. and it worked really well to keep them alive over the summer. But when we moved to this property, we moved in July and it, what he didn't have time to get it set up. So I think he sold off his rabbits and then we just never got started with them again. Okay. But we, we did rabbits for, I think three or four years and my husband did a great job of it. I learned how to cook them really well and it provided us with a lot of meat when we didn't have very much space and they were quiet. We, you're allowed to raise them in an HOA unlike chickens. So yeah, I think we only ever had like maybe two does and a, what are the males? Males are called bucks, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> I think that's all we ever had, but that it provided us with more than 50 pounds of meat a year. It was, it was great. And you did that in an HOA. I think, I think they're technically uh-huh. a pet, right? So you can raise them. So yeah. They're not li- – well, yeah. yeah. That's – so – They're a pet and they're really quiet. They don't They don't make any noise. So, I mean, if someone complains, they it's a pet, but also they're not bothering anyone. They don't smell as much. They're a very great animal and very underrated um, to have in, in a backyard. Did you guys do any gardening in the HOA? We did. Um, not a ton because, again, my kids were just very little. So that's I w- they were my main focus. But we did have like two raised beds where we would ri- like do tomatoes, zucchini, very basics. Yeah, we did the same thing when we were when we were there in the suburbs. We we did. a. I think it was during 2020 when all the crazy shutdowns and everything. <laughs> we grew a whole forest of massive sunflowers in the backyard and just had we had lots of time. And so we grew we yeah. grew tons of food. Just that one year, we kind of kind of fizzled out the next uh, the following year, and then we moved. But, um, but yeah, I know that's interesting. So let's talk about heat a little bit. Obviously, you guys are in one of the hottest spots in the country um, as far as where uh-huh. people people live. Uh, I spent six, seven, eight years there total. I definitely got to see what that's like. Um, what, what is that like for you guys? How do you, what are some of the things you do to kind of get around the heat? What are some adaptations that you've developed and maybe you're still working on? Yeah, always still working on that. Um, I think it definitely starts with getting your animals adapted and making sure you have the right animals. We've definitely found certain chicken breeds do better in the heat than others. We don't really do dual purpose chickens anymore because of that, because if they're, they're heavier, they don't do as well in the heat. Um, so we definitely keep that, but we also make sure that they adapt to the weather. So a lot of people, as soon as the temp hits hundred degrees, they'll start spraying down their chicken coops and giving them ice blocks and stuff. And hundred degree, we still have several degrees before it's going to get to our hottest. So we wait until it's actually stressful on them to start doing those things. So we do put set like a sprinkler in their coop and wet down the area because it keeps it cooler. But we wait until it hits over 110 before we start doing that because it helps the animal adapt better. Um, we've added a lot of shade for our cows, but we also keep in mind if you drive by any cattle here in Arizona, they don't have shade. Those range cows are out there on normal days without shade, maybe a few bushes or like short trees. So we didn't stress about that too much. Our cows have always had maybe like one or two trees to hide under, but it wasn't until this most recent year that we had like an actual shade structure for them to be under, which they love, but they, they adapt. Um, I think that's, yeah, mostly it's just selecting animals that have 
that can adapt to the heat and then breed. We don't usually buy animals from out of state either. Most of ours have come from in-state and I think that helps too. Like our cows didn't come from Idaho where it's such a drastic change in weather. And I think that's helped keep them able to handle our heat. So as far as chicken breeds, you mentioned that you've kind of got some some favorites that you you find work in the heat. What what are some of those? Yeah, I first I love the white leghorns, brown leghorns. Those are probably some of my favorite. They're they're a light breed. They just don't get very heavy, and they live a long time here. Um, and they handle the heat really well. Um, I also like the uh, what are the the red stars or the red sex links. Um, they do really well. Um. Easter acres, they seem to handle the heat well, but they don't live very long for some reason. Mm. Ours only ever live like two years. I don't know why or if it's the hatchery we're getting them from or something. Um, I think those are my favorites. Those ones always, they always live for a few years and they they just take the heat well. Now, do they, because I I never kept chickens in in the area. So I, um, this may be a dumb question, but do they... Do they lay on a similar schedule as far as more production during the summer? Or do they, are they more snowbirds when it comes to, to their laying habits? They'll continue laying during the summer usually. Um, maybe a little bit less. I know they drop off in like July, August. They'll lay less, but they will keep laying. It's usually in the fall where they'll do like a fall molt and they'll stop laying for a little bit. We're about to hit that here soon. I think in November, we probably won't get very many eggs. And then they pick back up in the winter. Nice. <laughs> because it just doesn't get that cold. We still have quite a bit of daylight here. So they usually lay year round for us. That's that's beautiful. Oh, I did. Go ahead. I did want to add, though, because we're on the topic of chickens and heat. One thing we learned, I think the first year we did meat chickens, we bought them in the spring like everyone else does. And that was a huge mistake. Mm. Here, it's best to do it in the fall for basically two reasons. One, if you're getting them in the spring, you're butchering them in like May, June, when it's hot, it's not fun to be outside and the flies are terrible. If you get your chicks in October, then you're butchering in December when there's no flies. It's nice to be outside and it's just better for the chicks because it's already warm outside. You're less likely to need like heat lamps and all the things to keep them warm. It's kind of, it's, Maybe it's just a thing for our area, but I've told all my friends, just don't get the meat chickens in the spring. You'll regret it. Do them in the fall. It's same with pigs, actually. We've learned to do that. We ramp up a lot of our homesteading in the fall because it's just nicer for us. The summer, we try to like get it down to like the least amount of chores possible for those few months so that we're not having to be out there doing all the things. It's easier to do it kind of off season to what I feel like most other people do. But yeah, that the meat chickens starting in October. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we, like I said, I spent many years there and it's definitely what most people, you treat summer there like most people treat winter. You stay inside as much as possible exactly. and you just kind of try to not have a whole lot to do out outdoors. And then fall comes and winter comes and you've got the, the best deal in the country usually at that time. Yes. Um, so pigs, uh-huh. tell me about your pigs. 
Uh, so we raise, we just raise a few feeder pigs every year. Um, I think we have like a Berkshire, Hampshire cross. I don't even really care what breed. I don't, I don't really like the Cooney Coons or the Guinea hogs very much. We like the actual meat breeds and we just raise them for a few months in the winter. That's usually when my milk production's the highest because my cows have just had their calves. So it's, they get a ton of milk. They grow really well. Again, the heat isn't crazy. So we just, I think we got ours in the end of September and we'll just raise them out for six months and then they'll go to the butcher before summer hits. And that's what we've done every year. We don't have the space to be able to breed them. And so the feeder pigs every year works really well for us. Nice. Yeah, we're planning on doing that. I think next year, we've, we, every six months, I'm, I'm looking at it again and, and find a reason not to do it. But I think, I think next year we will do it. We always wanted... One of the reasons I haven't done it is I wanted to have a milk cow. Like you, you brought up the milk cow, and that's such mm-hmm. a great, uh, a great relationship to have. Um, but that's why we haven't done it. But speaking of milk cow, I mean, what I know that's kind of your your crown jewel there on the homestead. Um, mostly, what I see from you on Instagram is related to the cows and the calves. So maybe you can kind of tell your your dairy story a little bit. Yeah, I just I I love cows. And I, I, when we moved here, I thought I would jump into cows, but their size, we went to look at one and their size just intimidated me. And I had little babies and I was just so afraid for them, like getting into the pen on accident and getting hurt. So that's why we started with goats. Um, but we did eventually move to cows and I just love them. I love their personality. I love that they're easy to keep fenced in. I love how much milk they produce. I know a lot of people are afraid of how much milk, I mean, I just added this up this morning, but yesterday I got seven gallons of milk and that's after my calves were fed. So that's how much they produced for me, wow. um, which is just crazy from only two cows. And I mean, they're kind of towards their peak production right now because they just calved. So it won't always be like that, but um, I love it. I love the abundance of milk. I love how much you can do with it. I love that you can feed it to chickens, dogs, pigs. I love that you can make cheese, butter, Ice cream. Oh, I make so much ice cream. My family loves that. Um, it, they're, I just, they're my passion. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I got, I started with two cows in milk and they were bred back. Um, I was very pregnant with my fourth child. I had, so I dried them off right before I had my son. And then they both had their calves when my son was like two months old. That was a crazy <laughs> time, but <laughs> wouldn't recommend that. But, um, and yeah, I, I actually, I don't have those original two cows anymore. I have two different cows I'm working with now. Um, but yeah, I just, I just, I really like, and we also have beef cows. I don't talk about them as much because my husband takes care of them. They have horns and I was kind of charged once <laughs> while I was moving them because we, we rotate, we don't have a ton of space, but we do rotate our beef cattle. Um, and one of them ran towards me and I was like, I'm done. I can't move them. I, this is not mine anymore, so my, <laughs> but they don't charge my husband. I don't know if it's his size or he's just the boss cow. I don't know. So he, he moves them, but we do have beef cattle and that's really fun too. Um, we've raised our beef ourselves for, I think the last like five years, which is really cool. Usually we, we breed one of my Jersey cows to a beef cow, either a Hereford or Angus. And so we've raised her calves out for beef the last few years to feed our family. 
my husband's cows are mini Herefords and we haven't had a calf from them yet. Um, I believe they're due in February, but because they're kind of wild, I can't bring them in. Like I can't have the vet preg check them or mm. anything like that. So we're kind of guessing, hoping that they're pregnant. Um, with my Jersey cattle, I'm a lot more hands-on and we AI them with the vet and preg check them and all that sorts of stuff. So it's kind of a little bit weird to just be trusting that they're pregnant and hoping and not knowing when they're due. Um, so yeah, that's our cattle. We have the mini Herefords. We have some mini Hereford Jersey crosses and then my jerseys. So how, how many total do you have there? Let's see. So I have two Jersey cows in milk and then one heifer that I kept that will be in milk next year. Um, we have two bull calves right now. And then we have a mini Hereford bull and two heifers and then a steer that we're raising out. I didn't keep track. Is that like nine? I think so. I almost started tallying and I didn't, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's somewhere in that ballpark. So that sounds yeah. to me like a lot of cattle to have on three and a half acres. How do you make that work? It is. It's honestly a little too much. And we've been thinking about selling the mini Herefords. Um, but remember they're mini cows, so they don't, their feed is a lot less than a full size Hereford. So that helps. But we, we actually have separate paddocks to like, so we have three and a half acres. I would say we probably have like maybe two and a half of that fenced off for the cows. And we have more of it. We have another area we're going to add for the cows this year. We just have to get the fencing up first. Um, but we have like five areas, I think for the mini Herefords to rotate on. And then we have three for my jerseys. And right now we have my jersey separate because, like I said, they just had their calves and we have some issues we're working through. So we have to have them separated. But we rotate them. Um, my husband rotates them every couple days to a new area. Just He keeps an eye on the grass and sees how well it's growing, how fast, and rotates them accordingly. And so our mini Hereford group is on grass for probably like eight to nine months out of the year. Um, my jerseys, I've always fed them alfalfa, even if the grass is growing well, because it's just a dense food and jerseys, they, they lose weight. It's, they lose weight really quick if they don't have that dense food. So even in the height of summer, I'll still give them at least a flake a day, maybe two. Um, so we decided to give more area to the mini Herefords that thrive on the grass and less area to my jerseys that I would feed hay, no matter how much the grass they have. So that's how we manage it. We do have a little, a few too many cattle right now. So I, like I said, I think we're going to sell the mini Herefords in next summer um, and, and focus more on my jerseys because that's what's productive for our family or more productive, especially because I breed my jerseys to beef anyway. It doesn't really make sense to have a beef herd and a jersey herd. Right. So when you say you rotate them, do you have permanent fencing paddocks or do you do electric temporary or how does that look? We have permanent. We did it really slow. I mean, fencing's so expensive and we like the cattle panels. Right. So we did, we did it really slow. We started with like two big areas and then we would just add a line of fencing and we did kind of map it out and figure out how big we wanted them. And then as we had money, we would just go buy some fencing and put a fence up. So we have like an aisle system so that we can just open up a gate and they can go in and their water stays in the same place all the time. And like I said, this took us years. I think we've been working on this and the fencing since like 2018 and we still have one more area to fence off. It's gone really slow, but 
yeah, we have the cattle panels and T posts separating all these different areas. And yeah. Nice. Yeah. We, we've got, like I said, we've got that three, three and a half acre pasture and I want to start rotating. We only had the two, the two, uh, the two beeves out there this year for the last couple of years. Oops. So we really didn't need to worry about rotating and we weren't prepared. We didn't have the money, but yeah, we're kind of this winter is when we're doing the planning, getting the materials together and hopefully being able to pull something off. Um, but like you said, it, it takes yeah. time. You don't just, uh, I think a lot of people get started doing this and think they need to have everything, everything in place and all systems perfected within a year. And it's just not, re- it's not reasonable. It's not realistic. It's not, I've been working on my, so I've had a shed for my jerseys since I got them. And that was 2018. I have had, I had a shed. Well, the shed lost its roof one year. So we replaced it and we've been like moving fences and moving their stanchion ever since. And some, some, I had a friend over to look at my area and she's like, this is so amazing. Your setup is so amazing. And I'm like, but it wasn't like this when I first got my cows, when I first got my cows, my stanchion was made of wood. It was rickety. If they ever got mad, they could, <laughs> they could honestly, like it wiggled it everywhere. It was kind of scary. All I had was a table out there. My fridge was far away. So I had to like milk a little bit, pour it into jars, run it to the fridge, come back, milk some more. It, it was a lot, but we slowly made it so that my shed has lights, electricity. I have a milk machine now. I milked by hand for more than five years. Um, because again, we couldn't afford it. You have like, I feel like you have to go slow and I wasn't going to invest in a milk machine before I even knew that I was going to stick with it. Cause some people buy cows, goats, they milk for a couple of years, decide it's not for them and then sell it all. And I mean, you can sell your milk machine, but I just felt for me, I wanted to be committed to it before I bought all the things before I spent all the money doing it. So I've just done it very slow. Now my fridge is right like, cause we have electricity out there. It's right next to my area. So I'm able to milk, pour it into jars, get it in the fridge. It's all right there. All my supplies are right there. It's so nice, but it took me years. I don't, I think I only got my milk machine last year and we moved my fridge out around the same time. So, and I'm still working on it. I'm still have my fence. I want my husband to move. That will make everything easier for me. Um, we didn't have cow stalls until about a year and a half ago. So we didn't have like a good area to like separate the calf. We just made it work with what we had. But now we have stalls set up again with cattle panels. They aren't like fancy <laughs> stalls like you see some people have with horses and stuff. Um, we laid cement in our shed recently too. So yeah, it's just little by little. And I kind of like it like that. I mean, if you set it all up in the first year, I feel like you'd make a bunch of mistakes exactly because you don't really know what you're doing and so if you set up all your fence and that's great but then what if you're like man if the fence was over here just a few feet it would make so it make it so much easier so we've moved fences we've moved gates and we figured out where it works for us and then we move them some more and then we move them some right. more and it just before we add anything permanent so i think i have one gate still that's just like t-post drove into the ground. It's not even cemented in because we weren't a hundred percent that we were going to leave the gate there. So little by little, I think is the way to go. Yeah, I agree. I, I know that we've been here almost two years now and if it, luckily we didn't have a lot of money when we got here. So it really, yeah. really slowed us down. And I'm glad like if we'd come in and just had plenty of cash and started doing things, we would have so many things to, 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 
to move and regret. So it's, it's, I think it's exactly. important. And I, and I love too, that you just, you just got started. You didn't wait until you had everything perfect. Um, you probably got some of your ducks in a row, but like you just went for it. Cause I know, uh, I, I tell, I tell people a lot, like there's a lot of idealism in this homesteading thing, but if you wait until everything's ideal, you're never going to do anything and you won't learn anything from screwing things up either. Yeah, exactly. So as far as dairy, I mean, it, it, I think there's a myth that once you get a dairy cow, you're never leaving your house kind of thing. I mean, how, how does, how does your life look as a, uh, as a milkmaid? I feel like that's true, but I don't really like to leave my house. So it works for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Milking is not for everyone. That's for sure. If you like to go out of town a lot, if you want to travel the world, it's probably not for you. I, I won't disagree with that. I used to have an awesome farm sitter who watched my farm for not very much money, and she did a great job. Well, she moved, so now I don't really have anyone, and having someone you trust to milk your cows is kind of hard because it's not something that you can just teach your neighbor how to do in like a session or two. And if they don't do it properly and you come home to a cow that's sick or has mastitis, like it's a big deal, especially for me. So it's, it's kind of hard. Um, my husband and my daughter can do it if I want to leave, like if I want to go out of town by myself or something. Um, but I did actually, that's why I bred my cows to both calve at the same time. Cause it gave me a two month dry period where neither of them were being milked. And I actually went on like four vacations during that two month <laughs> period because it was a lot easier to find someone to just feed your cows for you than it is to find someone to milk. So I would say it's true, but I don't, I don't have an aspiration to travel the world. So I like to go visit my family. I have uh, my grandparents live in Utah. I love to go visit them. Um, we love to go camping, but I don't know. I like to be home more. So we kind of just figure it out when we need to. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we've been here almost two years and we realized recently that uh, my wife and I have slept every single night of these two years on this property. And we like it that way. But when we lived in Arizona, we had family, we could have the kids dropped off for a weekend, you know, go up to Sedona or do yeah. whatever. And we would do that, you know, once every few months. And now we realize, wow, we're, we're here. Um, and, uh, <laughs> so we're, that's why we're thinking about doing it because we do love being here and we, um, you know, it's just, uh, it is a big commitment and, uh, my wife will probably be the one doing the milking. So we're taking it slowly. So we're planning on buying a Jersey heifer. She'll be about six months or so old. Um, our okay. neighbors raise, uh, they have a, a, a small dairy, uh, a big small dairy. I don't know, but they have a lot. They have a lot going on. They they raise a lot of beef okay. and 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 pigs, and they're they're definitely um, farmers uh, as well as homesteaders. But um, so, what do you think? I mean, we get her get her at six months. When do we breed her? Like in a year, or what's what's ideal for that? Yeah, it's usually just after a year. You want them to have their first calf around their second birthday. Okay. So they're pregnant for about 10 months. So it's usually like a year and two months, depending on their size. Obviously, you want them to be in good condition when you breed them. Um, but yeah, I actually have my heifer that was born last October, and I'll be breeding her in January. Okay. And th so she'll have a calf in October on her second birthday. Okay. All right. That's good. That's good. And then they don't start 
lactating until they're pretty much having the calf, right? Yeah, not until after they've had their calf. And then at that point, you could you could start milking, like you said. You you do like a, they call it a calf share, right? Where you isolate the calf overnight. Is that pretty much you could start doing that right away? I'm completely green here, as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. So after a cow has her calf, um, you usually want to start milking right away. Actually, so she'll have her calf, and maybe I usually do the next milking time. So my cow, one of my cows this year, had her calf at like I think 1 p.m. So I milked her the, for the first time that evening um, and then every 12 hours after that. So when they first have their calf, it kind of sounds weird because people are like, oh, the baby needs the milk, but the mom's going to produce more milk than that baby could ever drink. So we milk her twice, twice a day. Within like four days, we were getting gallons from her after her calf had been on her all day. So we start separating at night, usually around two weeks. We did earlier this year. Um, due to a couple of reasons, but yeah, the calf, we put the calf in with mom around noon and then they have her until 6 PM when we separate them. And we, we do feed them a bottle in the morning because I have two cow two calves on one cow this year. Um, her calf plus the calf from my other cow, we grafted onto her. And so when I milk her out, she's empty and the two calves were kind of destroying her teats. So we give him a bottle in the morning and then just wait until noon when she's full with milk again, and then we put them together. Okay. Well, we're looking forward to it. It sounds like we've got a while if we're on our time frame, so that's a good thing. Um, we'll probably be eager, yeah. but um, you know, one of the things that we found, we've got a, a huge garden, and we're, we're doing okay. We're, we've got a lot of room to grow, no pun intended, but um, you know, <laughs> we find that, my goodness, we've got not only does the garden take a lot of work planting and, and preparing and pests and, and all the weeding and all the things, then there's the harvest. Mm-hmm. Then there's everything that's in our kitchen that needs to be processed in a timely <laughs> manner. You know, I, I, yes. I kind of imagine, and like, I want to get your, like, what does your life look like in that kitchen with all the dairy? You said you brought in seven gallons today. I mean, what, What is, what does that process look like? What is a day in the life of Danny Welton doing that? (laughs) Um, It's kind of insane, especially, especially now with just how much milk it is. But I guess I milk the cows in the morning and then I come in, clean up the kitchen from everyone eating breakfast. And then I usually just get a cheese started. Cheese is my favorite way to use up a bunch of milk. So my my pot is four gallons. So I'll do a cheese probably three to four times a week. Um, I also have a cream separator. So sometimes if I'm just drowning in milk, I'll just bring in a bunch of milk, heat it up and just cream separate it. I have no problems just dumping a bunch of milk to the pigs or chickens. It used to bother me a little bit because I'm like, all this hard work is being wasted, but it's not, it's not being wasted. Even if you dump it into the ground, you're feeding the soil. So I'm raising pigs on it. So yeah, I'll, I'll do a big batch of cream separation, um, at least once a week. Um, actually I made a reel on this last year. I should remember, but I, I know I have like, let's say probably 12 gallons of milk to make a cheese. I'll usually make a batch of ricotta. I love ricotta nochi. That's I'm like obsessed with that <laughs> right now. So I'll make a batch of ricotta just to make ricotta nochi. Um, we, I make chocolate milk. My family drinks a lot of milk. And I think this is something that I've kind of trained them to do over time, not intentionally, but it's like, they come to me in between meals and I'm hungry. I'm like, well, have a glass of milk. We have plenty. 
But over the years, I mean, everyone's learned to drink quite a bit of milk. So I had a friend that was trying to use up a bunch of milk and she asked me how I did it. And I'm like, well, if everyone in my family drank one glass of milk, so like a pint, which isn't much, right? If everyone in my family of six drink one pint of milk a day, that would be over five gallons a week right there and just drinking. That's not even including cooking, baking, anything else. So I encourage my family, if they're ever hungry in between meals, have a glass of milk. Um, have one with your snack, have a banana with a glass of milk. Um, so I encourage that a lot. Um, I bake with it a lot. Like I love to use, I sub milk for water in like all of my bread recipes. Um, I have a whey caramel sauce. That's awesome. I love to use that. To use up some whey, mostly whey. I just, I give to mm-hmm. the pigs, but I, I love this whey caramel sauce as a way to use that up. Um, but yeah, I guess a day in a life is I, I pour myself a glass of milk while I'm stirring a cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I almost always have a cheese on the counter that's waiting to be put into the cheese, my little cheese fridge. Um, I actually made enough cheese this summer that even though my cows weren't in milk for two months, we still have enough cheese right now. And I'm going to start making some because my cows just have, I'll start making some again, but we didn't run out. We didn't have to buy any cheese, which was amazing. Um, we eat probably a four pound block of cheese a week too. And just, I mean, in grilled cheese sandwiches, quesadillas, putting on top of casserole, uh, pizzas. Um, so we eat a lot of cheese. <laughs> I guess it's kind of, it's definitely a learned thing though. I feel like, especially because dairy can be so expensive if you're trying to buy high quality that you try to like ration it or portion right. it. I know when we were buying raw milk before we had our own dairy animals, we only bought two gallons a week because that's all we could afford. And so it wouldn't, it wasn't as freely given. It was like, Oh, you already had your glass of milk today. Sorry. You can't have another because we won't have enough for the week. Um, and same with cheese. We could only afford to buy like a pound a week because it was just so expensive. So now it's kind of the opposite. It's have as much as you want and there's more where that came from. We'll have more tomorrow. That's, that's my dream right there. Uh, do you mostly so you mentioned ricotta i know that's a pretty quick quick easy cheese um but you do like pressed cheeses like cheddars and things like that or what all what all do you do i do make cheddar but not a lot of it it takes a lot of time i love cheddar and i have a cheddar recipe that i make sometimes but it's you're tied to the kitchen for like three to four hours making that cheese and it's worth it it's so good i just i I mean, I homeschool also, and I've got four kids that have activities outside of the house and stuff. And especially as they've gotten older, they just, they want to be out with friends more and stuff. So I don't have as much time. So I have um, two quicker cheese recipes that I make, um, Alpine and Butter Case. Those are my go-tos because they can be, it can go from the time you cut the curds to the time it's in the press is under an hour. And it's just, it's a better use of my time, especially because most of our cheeses, I found that we were just shredding and using them like melted on stuff. And so you don't really need the flavor of a raw cheddar when you're just cooking with it anyway. So I reserve the raw cheddar for when we want to have like cheese cubes with a snack or something like that, or a slice on a sandwich because the flavor is better, but it just takes so much time. So those are the two pressed cheeses I make most often. I actually make a fake uh, Parmesan. Mm. It's not actually Parmesan. Obviously, to be Parmesan, it has to be it precise location. And Parmesan, it's a whole thing. But I actually I stumbled on a recipe, and then I messed it up when I was like a newbie learning how to do all the things. 
we decided to try it anyway. And everyone was like, wow, this tastes a lot like a Parmesan. So now I make it on purpose because <laughs> it's a really easy recipe. And we just can shred it on top of our pasta, just like a Parmesan. And the flavor is there. Mm. So most of my pressed cheeses are very simple recipes. Um, I do make ricotta and I love to make cottage cheese. Um, some of the fresher ones. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. Oh, Chev. Chev's a really good one that's really easy and the flavor is so good with some crackers and stuff. Um, yeah, I make a huge variety, but I just, I, I stick with the simple, quick recipes because I, time. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, that makes, that makes sense. Uh, so that, that mistake recipe is intriguing. <laughs> what was the original recipe that you, you tried that ended up being like Parmesan? It was actually a brie. So I was trying to make brie and brie is actually not very hard. Okay. So I know when people say to make, to start making cheese, a lot of people start with mozzarella thinking that it's an easy recipe. I would recommend you don't start with mozzarella. It's actually not an easy recipe. Brie is actually easier than mozzarella, I think. But I was making a brie. I've made one before, but I forgot about it. I put it in my cheese cave and you're supposed to let it dry a little bit and then you're supposed to wrap it. Well, I forgot to wrap it. And so it dried out mm. like completely. It was like a brick. And then because I messed it up, I just let it sit there for even longer. <laughs> and by the time we got it out, I was like, what am I going to do with this? I was like, I guess I'm just going to throw it to the pigs. And my husband's like, well, it looks fine, right? There's no like crazy mold on it. Why don't you just sample it? Try it. And it, it was a winner. Wow. And like I said, I make it on purpose now. My kids will just eat chunks of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny and it, it stores really well i've i've had some in my i found some that got pushed to the back of my fridge and it was a year old and it tasted great still but it's it's so easy and it, i only i only make like a two gallon batch too versus for a true parmesan you're supposed to do like 10 gallons because it can dry out if you don't have enough mass so much easier. I love that. A lucky accident. See, that's why you just got to jump in and do things, folks. And you never know what kind of uh, awesome thing you'll uncover from making a mistake. Not always, but you know, sometimes. Yeah. Um, well, and with cheese making too, when you start, don't get discouraged. I threw out so much cheese that first year. So much. I'm not, for like six months, I was probably making one cheese a week and we weren't eating any of it. <laughs> There's just a steep learning right. curve for it. I mean, if you think of sourdough bread, most people who make their first loaf, it's not successful. Yep. It's kind of the same thing with cheese making. I'd probably say more of a learning curve than sourdough. It's an art and people spend a lot of time learning how to do it properly. And it took me a long time to finally get one that turned out right, that was edible, <laughs> that didn't taste gross. And so I would say for sure, don't get discouraged. Keep going. Keep trying. Try different recipe. Um try different technique. That was part of my problem is that I was, I wasn't stirring the curds enough. Cause I didn't, it said stir for 20 minutes. And I just thought it meant like stir them around every once in a while, not sit there and actually stir the curds for 20 minutes. And so that was a lot of my mistake. Another mistake I made is I was using too much culture and rennet because I'm using raw fresh milk. Um, and I was reading recipes that were for pasteurized milk and they use different proportions. And I didn't realize that at first. And so it caused a lot of my cheeses to be bitter or too, too much flavor that it was, I don't, I don't know how to put that. It was just off putting. We couldn't stomach it. So learned a lot, but I learned a lot. Now my cheeses turn out probably 95% of the time. And if, even if they're not perfect, they're still edible. <laughs> 
So, okay. So you've learned a lot and um, mm-hmm. I believe you have, you have an ebook, right? Where you kind of uh, talk about some of this. You have some recipes. Maybe you could talk about your ebook. Yeah, I put it together. So they're not all my recipes. Some of them are, but some of them are just adaptations that I made. I would read a recipe and after I learned how to do the conversions with the rennet and the and the culture, I switched them to raw milk and then scaled them to the scale that I wanted. And I had a lot of friends asking for my recipes and how I was doing it because they were also failing with their cheese making. And so I just put my favorite recipes together that I make regularly. And I know there's a lot more out there and there's some that I make, but I just don't make them often, kind of like the cheddar. But I put my ones that are my like tried and true recipes into this book. And I know there's like a hundred ways to make ricotta, but like which one is easiest? Which one is not going to burn at the bottom of your pot? Which one takes the least amount of input, quickest time? So I kind of filtered through and picked my favorites and the ones that work and put them together in this ebook. And so I have in there, I have, I think the recipes I've already mentioned, I have ricotta, I have a cottage cheese, the whey caramel sauce, my Alpine butter case, uh, the Parmesan mistake that I made. I had to add that. Um, I added brie, but it's, it's a very, I should say another thing that I struggled with, even if I found a good recipe that I liked, I had a hard time finding the culture that they were talking about. Learning the cultures for cheese making is almost learning like another language. It was so confusing. So in my book, I link directly to the culture I'm talking about. So when I say use this culture for butter case, I also provide the link for that culture. So you're not having to like scour a site trying to find it or the rennet, the, the exact rennet I use, not just any rennet you can find. I show, I link the one that I like that I use. Um, same with cheesecloth. There are so many cheesecloths out there and it was hard. I tried so many, so many of them would stick to my cheese and like I was, pulling cheese off of the block, wasting so much of it because the cheesecloth sucked. And so I tried a bunch and I found my favorite. Um, Same with my cheese press, like even cheese presses, like it makes your head spin trying to decipher all this stuff and learn what you want and stuff. So I've gone through and I made a whole like resources page where you can find everything I use to make it easy if you want to invest in cheese making or if you want to just dabble and see what you like. And if you want to make more, I I put it all into a huge resource so that you can just find what you need and make simple recipes to feed your family. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, You've got, uh, you've got all of that experience and and the mistakes you've made and the, and the trial and error (laughs) all distilled into something that's, uh, that's uh, easy for somebody else to just kind of jump in and, and hopefully skip over some of those challenges that you had. Yes. (laughs) Beautiful. Wow. I will leave a link in the show notes to, to that ebook. Um, and I'm looking forward to actually picking it up once we, we get our, uh, we got a little time, but, uh, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited about that process. I definitely learned a lot today and, uh, yeah, I just want to thank you, Danny. I'm, I'm glad we got the opportunity to chat and, um, yeah, it's just it's been fun. So I look forward to maybe bringing you on in the future and seeing what else is going on. And yeah, just thanks again. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. There you are, folks. My conversation with Danny Welton. Hope you enjoyed getting to hear their story and and how they 
manage to raise everything they're doing on that property and how they manage to use and consume and make best use of all of that milk that they're getting on a daily basis. Definitely inspiring. Uh, Check out if you're looking for some recipes for cheese and other dairy products, I would definitely check out her ebook. It's pretty awesome. I got it myself and uh, definitely going to be using some of those recipes. So check that out. And just want to thank everybody for being here and uh, look forward to seeing you next time. And until then, this is Jason signing off, reminding you to do something today to improve your tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Plans and Provisions podcast. If you would like to stay up to date with everything happening around the homestead, head on over to the website at plansandprovisions.com. 